Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are. As you know, in each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we speak with an author of a new book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies and has been recently published. In today's episode, we are joined by Professor Tony K. Stewart, who is a Gertrude Conway Wanderbilt Chair in Humanities and a Professor of Religious Studies, Asian Studies, and Islamic Studies at Vanderbilt University. In his book, Witness to Marvels, Sufism and Literary Imagination, which is published by the University of California Press in 2019 and is available free and free as an open access text through luminosa.org. That's L-U-M. Inosa.org. We are taken into the imaginal realms of ogres, fairies, Sufi peers, and Piranis, and Hindu gods and goddesses. Known as Pir Kadam, the fictions and hagiographies that feature Sufi saints and complex cosmologies highlight the generative capacity of literary cultural productions as they provide fascinating insights into religious ideals of the Bengal. Bangla-speaking world, but also broadly South Asia. These stories, some of which continue to live on through performance spaces into the modern period, are important textual traditions that invite its readers into marvelous worlds where the characters and storylines requires one to explore and reimagine how notions of Islam and Hinduism interacted and transformed the landscape of pre-modern Bengali world, such as through processes of continuity and adaptation as opposed to fissures and disruptions as we so often think. The book will be of interest to scholars who work on Islam in South Asia, as well as those who engage in literary studies. While the stories translated here will be a great resource for courses that engage in South Asian Islam. In our conversation today, we spoke about some of the challenges of translation, how one uses literary studies to understand religious history and meaning making, the lived legacies of the stories found in the book, as well as how to think about ideas of religious syncretism and its limitations um, in the study of Islam, South Asia, and religions broadly. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Tony K. Stewart about his book, Witness to Marvels, Sufism and Literary Imagination. Hi, Professor Stewart. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, Witness to Marvels, Sufism and Literary Imagination. And and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you very much. Um, So we have a tradition in the podcast to uh, begin our conversation by asking you a little bit about your intellectual journey and what led you to writing this particular book, but generally what led you to the field of studying Islam, religion, South Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, When I was in college, I got interested in the study of religion and I ended up going to um, the University of Chicago to study with Ed Demock. And it was uh, somewhat of an accident, I guess you would say, that I ended up studying Bangla rather than some other language. But I was very intrigued uh, by some of his work, and I ended up doing a dissertation on the hagiographies of uh, the religious biographies of Krishna Chaitanya, uh, who is a 16th century Bengali godman. And in the process of compiling uh, information about those hagiographies and, and combing through the libraries and manuscript catalogs and the, and the, the archives in Calcutta, I kept running across a figure that I had not encountered before named uh, Satyapir or in Bengali, Shatyapir. And uh, Shatyapir, uh, I just kept collecting the, the articles, uh, the references. I found small texts. I would, I would uh, put them in a file. And um, 
<clears throat> over a period of a number of years, the file just kept growing. And, and finally, about, I guess it was the late 1980s, about 1888 or 89, I pulled the file out and realized I had a one and a half file cabinet drawers full of material just on Chateaupier. Mm. And then when I tried to find anything written about Chateaupier, I found a few references uh, in uh, all the languages that I consulted and uh, in European languages and Indic languages, and it totaled uh, fewer than 80 pages. And I thought, you know, for a figure that has this many um, texts, it's just astonishing that no one has looked at it. So that, that launched the project, actually. I, I published one book on Chateaupier. I did translations called Fabulous Females and Peerless Peers, which Oxford published. Um, and there were eight stories uh, of how women um, had to uh, fix the world that the men had messed up. And they set right the world at the end and, and got things back on track. And it was, they were quite humorous tales. But all of them involved Chateaupier uh, enabling these women uh, to accomplish great things. And that I found, of course, very intriguing as well. So in the process of spending time in Calcutta and in Dhaka and Bangladesh, in uh, uh, the British Library in uh, London, I, I found um, just a huge number of uh, other texts. And I realized that there was an entire literature out there that simply was not examined at all. And then part of the puzzle was, why not? How could we have a literature this large? 750 manuscripts, 100 authors, 160 printed texts. How could we have a, a, a literature that large that no one was uh, looking at? And that's what uh, intrigued me to jump into this project. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the stories and of Satya Pier are so fascinating. Really, you're opening to us just a new, new marvelous world. I think as the title aptly captures. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know how you found these sources? You're kind of describing that a little bit in your introduction, but also what some of the challenges were. You talk a lot about this in your preface about some of the decisions that you made about transliteration and translation. Um, so can you walk us through some of that process? Yeah, I, uh, first of all, um, there's simply no substitute for spending uh, hours and hours and hours with the old printed catalogs of the British Library and the manuscript catalogs uh, for the repositories in West Bengal and Bangladesh. And uh, that's just old-fashioned uh, kind of uh, work where you just spend endless hours combing through, looking for clues, looking for texts. Uh, so that, that was a, a, a big part of it. Um, I also had a, a very interesting moment um, when I was at the what used to be the India Office Library um, in London before they combined with uh, the other library, the British Library. Um, and that was, they had a um, what they called the Blue Catalog. The Blue Catalog was um, three uh, card files, uh, probably totaling, I don't know, maybe 500, 600 um, uh, cards of uncatalogued material that was in the Bengali collection. And in that, I found a trove. And, and that's actually what jump-started the, the, the expansion of the project. And I was able to track down, uh, spending months and months in that library, I was able to track down. Uh, any number of texts and copy them, and uh, that sort of became the nucleus. But one of the things that struck me as I was putting this material together was that I had colleagues in North Carolina who were um, uh, Islamicists and specialists in South Asia, and uh, people were very uneasy uh, when I started talking about these tales as uh, Islamic mythology. And so uh, that uneasiness, uh, at first I thought, you know, you know why, why should they be uneasy? And then I began to realize that it was, a, it was really a bigger problem. Uh, they didn't see that these things were properly Islamic, at least in their eyes. 
And as a result, they were being ignored. And I realized that this was not an uncommon uh, perspective. And yet, all of these texts proclaim themselves to be uh, Islamic in their orientation. Allah is, uh, and that's the Bangla pronunciation of uh, Allah, is Allah, <clears throat> is, uh, uh, you know, uh, clearly the supreme uh, deity. Uh, and, you know, no matter what you call it, um, these tales were, in fact, uh, Islamic. And so I, I began to look at the structures of knowledge that were keeping us from recognizing these things. That led to two things. One was uh, Carl Ernst and I, my colleague at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, uh, who has worked on extensively on Sufism, and I were running a summer um, seminar uh, for the NEH, National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, that was on um, uh, sort of crossing borders. And we uh, began to realize that um, the way the literature was organized was establishing categories that had no place for anything that was humorous or that was uh, not uh, historically verifiable or was not high literature in Arabic or Persian. And so that was, uh, that was part of the, um, the deal. And I, at first I, you know, I tried to find, uh, a way around this, and I realized that there's actually a name for this, and this ignorance that we have uh, is called agnotology. And in the social sciences, agnotology refers to the structures of knowledge that blind us to what is right in front of our noses. And uh, once I realized that it was such a big problem, then I set about trying to find ways to approach um, the literature. Um, the next step, and, and really the, the thing that ultimately broke open the entire process, was I realized that uh, all the approaches to these stories had either been historical in a sort of positivist way, that is, uh, trying to establish facts uh, and dates and that kind of thing, <clears throat> or um, they had been read as folk literature, and therefore a historical um, and uh, basically timeless um, and, and uh, rootless. And I realized that one of the problems uh, with that was, you know, you either wanted history uh, or you wanted mythology. And scholars were separating those in these stories. And the historians would get rid of all the, what they thought were the mythical or, or other elements that didn't fit. And the people who were working on mythology got rid of all the historical. And so you basically tore the texts in two. And yet I realized that the, the, the authors didn't do that. And so it finally, and you know, it's one of these things, you know, you spend years sort of beating your head against the wall trying to figure out something like this. And it suddenly hit me, uh, they're literature. So let's use literary critical techniques to unpack what the stories have to say. And uh, that's when this, the uh, uh, witness to marvels really began to take shape, and I knew exactly what I had to do. That's so fascinating, yeah. Um, and can you give us maybe some context for some of these stories or peer kazas, um, stories about peers? Um, what time period are we looking at? Who are, maybe who are kind of the authors before we get into maybe an example of a particular story, just to get our listeners a sense, uh, a taste maybe of what you're dealing with. Yeah, uh, the earliest story that I've got comes from uh, uh, dated around 1630, um, which is uh, uh, the story of Khwaja Kizr, um, which is actually a figure who is named in the Quran, um, and he is the uh, uh, the teacher of Moses. Um, and uh, Zayi Sultan wrote uh, a hagiography, or actually a history of uh, Islam uh, and, and the life of Muhammad in Bangla, the first time it was done in Bangla. And it's called the Nobi Bangsho. And uh, Aisha Irani, uh, by the way, at the University of Massachusetts, University of Boston, UMass Boston, sorry, uh, has worked extensively on this and has just published a book with Oxford uh, on this um, topic of the Nobi Bangsho. But it's the lineage of uh, Muhammad. That's the earliest piece. Um, 
some of the um, of the of the purely Islamic pieces. Now there's Shukdopir material that also dates back um, that early, and then I had a, a another text which was the uh, Rai Mongol of Krishna Ram Das, which dates to sixteen ninety four. And uh, with that text uh, we have the first uh, what most people would call a Hindu text extolling the virtues uh, of a Muslim uh, peer. And so uh, since then there have been a number of smaller texts. Uh, the the range is actually quite large. Some texts are as many as twenty thousand which is uh, when you translate 20,000 lines, that probably is 600, 700 pages. Um, and some of them are, you know, as short as 10 or 15 pages. Mm -hmm. So of the hundreds of texts, and there are hundreds, um, I began to take samples and uh, try to work through and figure out who they were for. And uh, it's clear that the audiences were not literate for the most part, although there were clearly some authors who were working on a much higher literary level. Um, but they were often, I think, read out uh, and told. They were performed in Jatra theater, uh, improvised, uh, and the texts themselves will often show many of the marks of uh, public performance, where you know the, the narrator will say, and so-and-so said, or what did the king do then? You know, that kind of, of interjection, which suggests that it's an oral presentation. So it's a mix of uh, um, high literary and uh, uh, the opposite, I guess, public performance that is improvised for audiences uh, through all ranges. But they were illustrated uh, lavishly uh, in the 18th and, and early 19th century in scroll paintings in courts and that kind of thing. So um, part of the problem, because there's been so little work on it, is knowing exactly who the audiences were. But they're so ubiquitous, uh, there's so many in number, that um, they had to be circulating widely uh, to a number of different communities. So that, that part is uh, always going to be a little bit elusive, uh, but you can piece together indirectly who the audience uh, really was. Yeah, and even I think the cover of the book is beautiful because it has kind of Satyupir, I think, transforming as, a, as an ogre. And so even the cover um, illustration captures this. And, and we're talking about gods and goddesses and shape-shifting and just kind of very miraculous and uh, exciting things happening. And so I wonder, if, to give a flavor to our listeners, is there like a particular story that is your favorite or one that you always come back to in terms of describing some of the, the flavor of the text that you're dealing with? Usually I have to say uh, I, I do have some favorites, but generally the, my favorite story is the one I happen to be reading at the moment. Mm. Uh, <laughs> is, uh, is an honest response, actually, because yeah. they're so fascinating. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the cover uh, and also the Francis piece inside the yeah. text. Um, the cover is uh, from one of those uh, scroll paintings from Murshidabad, uh, probably uh, late 18th century. And uh, it's uh, completely counterintuitive because Shatopir, who is the, the good guy, if you will, uh, is the ogre, uh, has transformed himself, transmogrified into this giant ogre-like figure, but not to kill um, uh, the... Um, uh, Bashanta Rai, who's the, the king, uh, but rather to scare him and, and frighten him into uh, treating uh, peers, uh, fokirs, uh, bibis, and so forth with respect, and, and treating Muslims generally with respect. And so uh, he, it, it sort of captures so much of what goes on in these tales. Uh, so it's not a violent image at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, but it's counterintuitive because most people glance at the, um, at the cover and immediately think they know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. Right, right. And, uh, and, and again, <clears throat> this scroll, uh, which is in the British uh, Museum, has about uh, 60 frames um, that tell the stories of the peers. 
And I've identified about seven of the tales of what I think are probably 10 cycles of tales that are represented in that. And, um, both of those the uh, images come from that scroll, which can be found if you get on the British Museum website and just look up a Gaji Pot, G-A-J-I-P-A-T, and uh, it will pop up and uh, you can see the full range uh, of uh, illustrations. As for stories, um, I uh, um, am very fond, uh, actually, of the uh, Gaji Kalu and Shompavati story. Um, Gaji uh, is a, a peer who um, is uh, knows from from his birth that he is uh, going to be following a religious path. His father is a king. His mother is a queen. He has a half brother who is also very religious, and he refuses to take over the assume the kingship that his father wants him to do. And so he uh, is tortured. Uh, his father tortures him uh, with a series of ordeals. Um, he is put in a box, which is put in the fire for three days. Um, he is uh, has stones uh, strapped to his chest and thrown uh, into the ocean, um, at which he miraculously survives. Then he has elephants trample uh, him, but it turns out that the elephants are the ones who get hurt. And then finally, his father throws a needle into the bottom of the sea and tells him to go retrieve it. And if he doesn't, then he'll execute him. So he, he, in each case, he turns to Koda, our God, Allah, who sends help in some form or another. Sometimes it's Jibreel, um, the angel. Sometimes it's Kwajakizr. Uh, but in each case, he manages to survive. And so at this point, he knows... He's not going to be long for this uh, world, and he sets off with his brother on their adventures. And so they start going through uh, toward the southern parts of Bengal, and they, they help people as they need. They supply them with wealth when they're poor, as long as they're treated well. They try to get uh, uh, Hindu uh, kings and queens to treat Muslims uh, fairly. Um, and then they have built a, a, a mosque. And are staying in the mosque and they're asleep. Um, and these fairies come along and they're sort of cruising the night sky, you know, just out for a lot of fun as fairies are wont to do. And they look down and they see this absolutely stunningly beautiful figure named Gaji Pier. And they all just swooned. And but one of the fairies said, Yes, but I don't think he is more beautiful than this. Princess. The princess is named Champavati. And so they have a bet, and the fairies fly down. Uh, they sprinkle a little whiffle dust on Gaji's face. And, uh, you know, so he starts sleeping very soundly, and they pick up his cot. And this cot, then, they fly to the bedroom of Champavati. Now, Champavati's father is a Brahmin and a king. And so we have now a Muslim peer. Uh, in, in a bed, uh, in the bedroom of a uh, Hindu princess, and uh, both of them are dead asleep. And then suddenly, um, uh, Gaji Pierce sort of moves and frightens uh, uh, Babaji awake, and she's just flabbergasted, as you might imagine. Yeah. Uh, but they instantly fall in love. And uh, I mean, it takes a few minutes, but uh, <laughs> they, they sort of one look and they realize that you know, they were the ones meant for one another. And then he, he, Gaji even asked her, he's, and she says she's really quite certain that she can look into their horoscopes and find out. And sure enough, her horoscope, and she's very uh, learned in this regard, she knows the Shastras. Uh, her horoscope says, uh, that she is to be with this uh, man. She has been with him before, and she will be with him uh, in the future. And so they um, exchange rings, and uh, the text is a little bit vague about what follows after that, but then they both fall asleep, as, you know, lovers are wont to do after, uh, you know, playing a little bit. And so uh, suddenly the fairies realize that they've... Uh, allowed this to go on too long and it's about to turn daylight 
So they, they swoop into the room, <clears throat> they pick up the cot of Gaji, who is now fast asleep, and fly him back to his mosque. Now, it, what it turns out, Gaji has her ring and she has his. Gaji is actually in her bed and she is in his. And so they bend the bed switch. And so uh, any any questions about what happened, and you know, as you might imagine, Gaji and, and Champavati both are thoroughly mystified by what's transpired. Uh, but they know both know that it actually happened because of these physical objects that have been swapped. So then the rest of the story is Gaji trying to find Champavati. And uh, they go through, and Gaji and his brother Kali uh, have a number of adventures. They finally uh, locate Champavati after years and years of searching. And uh, it turns out that, uh, as you might imagine, uh, Champavati's father doesn't want to hear anything about them getting married. Mm-hmm. And so Gaji, uh, who had, is accompanied by an army of tigers, uh, sends the tigers into Brahman Nagor, which is the name of the town, of the citadel of the king, and uh, terrifies everyone, and then he realizes he's going to have to um, uh, fight the uh, Zamindar who uh, keeps the peace, basically, for the king. And this figure is named Dokim Rai, who's a giant of a man. He, he eats whole donkeys for breakfast, you know, this kind of thing. So, uh, he, uh, he finally realizes he's going to have to fight. And as he starts to go out to fight uh, and, and rid the town of these tigers, he, uh, there's a number of bad omens. And, during, and he realizes that, that this is going to be one tough fight. So he goes to the Ganga River, and he, he is a devotee of Maganga, the Hindu deity. And he calls her from the depths, and he says, I need crocodiles to counter the tigers. And she doesn't really want to give them because it turns out she's related distantly to Gaji. And finally, he uh, threatens that he'll kill himself if she doesn't. So she gives him an army of crocodiles, and he um, takes this army, and they start tramping toward the tigers. Well, the, the, the hides of the crocodiles, of course, are almost impervious to the tiger's claws and the tiger's uh, fangs. And so the tigers are getting beat up pretty badly. And so Gajipir then figures out what's going on. He summons the sun to um, uh, increase its heat. And of course, as soon as it starts to get really hot, the, the, all of the crocodiles start to slow down and try to sink into the mud and pretty soon they're helpless and so they're routed and they all go scurrying back to the depths of the Gumbo River uh, and it looks like uh, Gaji has won but Dokin Rai is not finished and so he then goes to Chundi the goddess Chundi and he begs her for um, uh, boots which are uh, these uh, ghosts hungry ghosts and, and other kinds of rakshasa demons and so forth. And uh, they are invisible. And so they start raining rocks down on the tigers. And uh, the tigers are totally routed by this. You know, they are getting beaten up with falling stones from the sky and they can't figure it out. Gaji figures out what it is, utters the Kali mob uh, as a mantra, blows it out of his hand and all of the uh, roots and houses begin to burn up and so they're incinerated uh, in these giant flashes of light so at this point uh, Dokin Rai realizes he's going to have to fight himself and so he uh, challenges then Gaji they have a horrible battle but Gaji ultimately prevails but the king still isn't convinced uh, that Gaji should be able to marry his daughter. So he marshals his own armies. And it turns out he has a well in the citadel that is the well of immortality. And so every time his uh, soldiers are slain, the king goes to the well and gets some of his 
nectar of immortality, this Amrita, and he sprinkles it on his soldiers, and they spring back to life, and they go back to war the next day. Well, this goes on for 18 days, which incidentally is the number of days of the of the Bharata War in the Mahabharata. Mm. I think not a coincidence. And uh, finally, Gaji figures out that they've got this well, so they throw. He gets the the tigers to slay a cow, and they take a big chunk of the cow meat, and the fairies fly it over to the well and drop it into the well, which of course renders it completely ineffective. And so the next time they fight, all the soldiers are killed. So now the tigers go into the city, uh, and they scare everyone to death needless to say. <laughs> and uh, finally they convince the king that he has to actually get his daughter uh, in marriage and so uh, from this point forward uh, they are married uh, they spend some time there so now the three of them gaji his brother kalu and champavati go on further adventures and then they start to backtrack and they revisit all of the places that they had uh, had adventures on the way out. And in the process, they also pick up uh, an older brother who had disappeared. Uh, Julhas is his name. And then they go home and are reunited. Gaji, Kalu, Julhas, and the two brides are reunited with uh, Gaji's parents. And at, at that point, the, the uh, story comes to a close and we don't know um, you know, how, whether they lived happily ever after or what exactly. But the story bears a, a, a very interesting resemblance to the allegories, the Sufi allegories that were circulating in um, Hindavi and uh, uh, Dakni and Avadi uh, languages. Mm -hmm. And they're not as formal. They're not, it's not as well developed as those uh, allegories. But there are hints that this is actually um, uh, an allegorical tale of the Sufis' personal quest for uh, relief and for uh, release. And so, uh, in a vague sense, I like it because it connects these stories to other North Indian tales uh, in their cycles. Mm. Very complicated. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, so many of the stories, there's so many twists and turns and there's, you know, human to non-human relationships and it's very magical and mystical. Um, it's so fascinating and there's so many layers and I, I think I could, I would love to see these stories enacted because I haven't had that experience of seeing mm -hmm. it in the performative context. But one of the things I'm wondering about and I think one of the central uh, maybe threads or interventions you are making in this book is that there are um, religious ideals in these texts um, and they appear indirectly and it requires um, some important uh, work for the reader to come to and analyze. So how, what does one take away from these texts in terms of if we were to draw from it, maybe if you're a religious studies scholar or an Islamic studies scholar, and if you're thinking, you're used to thinking about theological texts or jurisprudential texts or historical texts, how would you then engage with a text like this that is, you know, um, a very, you know, constructing a very different world. And perhaps, you know, people might say are fictional, but use that in a pejorative kind of sense, as you alluded to in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they, they are fictional uh, because they, they uh, the, so, the whole cycle of tales, and I, I don't know ultimately how many there are, but uh, several hundred, um, do not have any direct connection <clears throat> to many historical figures. Now they'll they'll name someone who sounds like a historical figure, but um, they are they are truly fictional, um, and in this sense they're autotelic. That is, they define the reality that they're describing. So one of the problems in interpreting these tales is people have tried to read them as history, or read them as conversion narratives, or read them as uh, you know folk tales or, or whatever. But in fact, uh, they're telling stories that are religious, but they're indirectly religious because the tales are fiction. And mm -hmm. in that sense, they're autotelic. They, they contain, um, they, they set the parameters of their own reality. And if it were to be overtly religious, if you were to start seeing doctrine 
argued or very specific theological points uh, being argued, um, then it would cross over from the world of fiction into something else. Um, and one of the problems has been people have tried to read them as something else too much. And what I think is important here is that if you take them in their own terms, then you don't have to tease out all the marvelous elements. You don't have to tease out the miracles. You don't have to separate um, the uh, anything that looks remotely historical from that which is clearly not what we think of as history. Um, and so if you read it as a whole, um, then fiction is really the only way that we can do that effectively. And the, the, uh, the stories then point to a world, but it's a simulacrum um, uh, of the real world. It's not the real world. It's a, it's a fictional uh, rendering. And so things can happen in that world, and they can explore ideas that are otherwise unavailable. So if you're if you're reading the life of a saint or you know a, a figure, um, a Sufi peer, or if you're you know or in any religious tradition, um, and the the tendency is to try and understand it historically. Here, um, there's no pretension to mm -hmm. history, or rather, they're fictions. But the fictions then point to certain realities, but it also gives them a freedom to explore ideas that, say, a historian or a theologian simply could not do. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, this explorative dimension, I think, is terribly important for understanding what the tales are about. And these, um, these authors, uh, you might even think of it as test driving uh, different ideas. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're trying to bring together and, and demonstrate how um, these Sufi figures can operate in a thoroughly Hinduani world, not Hindu in an adjectival sense. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I think should, should be kept in mind in reading this book is that the categories of Hindu and Muslim are really late uh, in, in Bangla letters. Uh, I prefer Mushalmani, Hinduani, other adjectival forms uh, which suggest the direction these things go. So the the, the tales, um, you know, they challenge people um, to think what, what we would use an expression maybe like think outside the box mm -hmm. uh, and explore new ideas. And in the in the process, they they bring together uh, Hinduani world and Mushalmani world and demonstrate that maybe the differences aren't as great as people imagined, and that they can, in fact, fit together comfortably. Uh, but it's explorative. It's, it's not definitive. It's not theological overtly, uh, but rather uh, they're, you might think of it as test-driving ideas. But what it does do is it makes the Islamic world a familiar world to a Hindu Bengal. And I think this is something that uh, is perhaps the single most important feature of these tales. It demonstrates how a, a Muslimani uh, perspective can fit into a world of gods and goddesses and apsaras and, and, and other celestial figures. Uh, and because they have their own cosmologies, they have their own uh, you know, saint-like figures, they have the peers, uh, the gajis, uh, the warrior saints, and so forth. And that they become then together uh, a much larger universe that uh, isn't alienated one from the other, but rather integrated. And I think you make this point very strongly at the end of chapter three, where you talk about that we need to rethink this idea of like conversion or this uh, idea of um, a radical break, but to actually think about more of, of reordering or displacement, and that these these stories kind of um, signal to that to that landscape. Can we talk a little bit more about um, this, and especially in terms of you know this discussion of vernacularization of Islam or Sufism in the uh, Bengali world and the transformations that are happening between the different religious traditions? Because you are seeing 
um, Hindu gods and goddesses. And, and as you say, there's some intertextuality in terms of formatting or style or tone that evokes other uh, religious genres in Hinduism, maybe. Um, and then you see the place of maybe Allah as being the supreme god, but there are other gods and goddesses. And then occasionally you have stories with Fatima or Prophet Muhammad in them. So it's like a really complex world, right? And so when you're looking at these tales, how do you think it helps us think about this, the religious landscape of the period that you're engaging with and the ways in which Islam and, or notions of these different religious traditions interacting with each other before they're kind of concretized as Islam and, and Hinduism or Sufism? Yeah, I, I, it's, uh, well, I mean, if you have, uh, you know, several months, we can really discuss this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it, it, I mean, it's a real challenge. Uh, and again, part of the challenge is trying to put away our insistence on the concretized categories of Hindu and Muslim mm -hmm. as somehow being fundamentally opposed to one another. Mm -hmm. Now, to, in today's political world, those categories are in fact opposed to one another. Mm -hmm. But in the pre-modern world, um, quit thinking of them as nouns and rather thinking of them as orientations. And uh, people have a common set of uh, powers that they can draw on in this universe. And there are different types of adventures that allow people to develop these powers. And so the stories really explore uh, the kinds of powers that, say, Hindu gods and goddesses have or that, uh, you know, various uh, powerful Hindu uh, sannyasins and, and so forth might have and how uh, Sufi peers have developed, <clears throat> pardon me, have developed um, similar kinds of uh, powers. And then it's a matter of trying to see where one matches the other, where one fits uh, with the other. And it's exploratory. Uh, in the, in the, one of the earliest texts is the Rai Mangal of Das, which is a traditional Hindu, most people would call it Hindu, um, Mangala Kavya or Mangal Kavya in Bangla. And in that, um, the, uh, the figure of, uh, of Burakhan Gaji is very uh, sort of reluctantly uh, given um, a high status. They fight. And uh, in the end, Burakhan Gaji uh, proves himself to be superior to this uh, Hindu god. And, and they, they broker a kind of peace, and actually they are, the, the peace is brokered for them by the supreme being, which in this case takes the form of uh, Shatopir. Satya means uh, truth uh, or being, and Pir, of course, is the Muslim uh, holy figure. And so we have a, a, what's often called a Hindu-Muslim figure in Satyapir. Uh, and there are numbers of stories uh, from this figure. Well, he brokers a peace and, and he basically says, uh, you know, life is too tough for you guys to be fighting mm -hmm. over such non-essential things. Uh, think about how you can live together and help one another and use your powers uh, together. So this is one of the first uh, recognitions uh, from the, what we might call the, the Hindu or Hinduani side uh, of the literature recognizing the power and presence uh, and importance of the peer. Then what happens uh, is the, the uh, literature begins to test drive different combinations. Uh, some of the earlier stories, uh, we have a kind of uh, almost one-for-one -one matching of powers, um, you know, and these, these celestial powers that these uh, holy figures, the Bibis and the, the uh, Peers, the uh, Gajis and so forth, uh, wield are similar to what the gods and goddesses or the great uh, ascetics of the Hindu tradition. And so there is a, a kind of test driving of ideas to see how they match and, and you know, how one fits with the other. Uh, are they equivalent or are, are they somehow one subordinate to the other. And then finally what happens, I think over a period of time, the uh, Mushalmani tales, um, which is where my interest is, tend to break away and no longer depend uh, on the 
Hinduani uh, tales, if, mm -hmm. if uh, we can use those terms, um, for their uh, existence, and we begin to see the uh, over a period of about four centuries, the uh, emergence of uh, a dominant cultural model, uh, which is Islamic, mm -hmm. uh, not Sufi in its orientation, but it's Islamic, where initially it, there was a kind of parody uh, between uh, the Hindu gods and the Muslimani uh, peers and, and shapes and so forth. So the stories themselves actually transform through time. They um, initially begin, almost you can think of it as trying to get a, the Islamic tales or the Mushalmani tales trying to get a, a foothold in uh, the Bengali cultural world. And uh, by the 19th century, it's more than a foothold. Um, you know, by the middle of the 19th century, you've got more Muslims than, than uh, Hindus, if we can use those broad categories, uh, in Bengal, and, and that's the case today. And so... Um, these stories, in a sense, uh, uh, parallel uh, historical changes, the historical shifts that take place in the actual makeup of Bengal and the makeup of the culture. So in, in, in that sense, uh, we've got a, a fictional, and, the, and I really do treat them as fictions, I think they are fictions, um, um, but they're religious fictions nonetheless. Mm -hmm. They, they tell a story of how uh, people gradually came to uh, appreciate and incorporate um, an Islamic perspective into what was effectively predominantly Hindu, some Buddhist uh, world. I don't know if that answered your question. But yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things I'm thinking about is a point that you come to in your epilogue of the book, which is around syncretism. And this is, um, I think you're reflecting back on a very important piece that you and Professor Carl Ernst wrote uh, a while ago on thinking about syncretism and the South Asian context and the limitations of framing um, particular religious encounters in those ways. Um, how, I wonder if you could walk us through what, what it meant for you to come back in the epilogue to reflect on that, that concept in light of these stories. Yeah, I, that, that moment, actually Carl and I did a, a, an NEH, National Endowment for Humanities, uh, summer seminar uh, called Rethinking Boundaries, uh, which was uh, looking at uh, the, the way people talked about Hindu and Muslim worlds. Um, and what we realized was that uh, the terminology itself tends to concretize or instantiate the categories of Hindu and Muslim as somehow ultimately separate and uh, inviolably separate. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're mutually exclusive. But in this early modern literature, that's not the case. So uh, one of the things, uh, you know, we're, we were trying to do was understand the processes. Well, it turns out um, that all of the metaphors that you use to describe syncretism, which is how you know, frequently people talk about uh, many of these things that aren't purely Hindu or purely Islamic uh, is uh, by assuming that there is such a thing as a pure Islam and a pure Hinduism and that these are aberrations. Mm -hmm. And so uh, most of the uh, sort of assumptions that are built into studies uh, make, and, and this, this is revealed through the, the metaphors that are used to describe the interaction. Um, syncretism uh, is bringing together two things that aren't supposed to be together. Mm -hmm. And it, they come together in some kind of unholy alliance. And then when that happens, uh, they can't possibly uh, survive mm -hmm. because they're not supposed to be together in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the, the emphasis has been on what they are before, that is two separate things, Hindus and Muslims, how they get together and then how they separate. So most of the emphasis has been on the assumption, you start with the assumption that these two communities are separate. What, what I tried to do, what Carl and I first started trying to do, and I re, I've really been the one to push it forward, 
is to look not at the two endpoints, but rather at what happens in between. And I look at process rather than strategy, uh, rather than in product. Because when you assume a category that Hindu and Muslim are mutually exclusive, then that's also going to be your conclusion. And if you look at the in-between, when they try to come together and these tales are exactly that moment when these traditions are encountering one another. And they're trying to make sense of one another and they're trying to figure out how they fit together. And they're all talking about, you know, God and the divine. They're talking about holy people. And they, the, the Muslims have holy people who are very powerful. The Hindus have holy people who are very powerful. And, and they're not necessarily enemies, but rather these stories start to look at how those powers overlap, how their perspectives overlap, and maybe integrating those two worlds into a single world. And I think uh, here's where fiction allows you to do that, whereas uh, theology, uh, uh, you know, doctrinal history uh, just simply can't. And so in that sense, the stories are exploratory. And um, in, in this sense, they, they really try to ask, what if? And I think uh, a lot of the joy of this is trying to imagine these two communities, not as exclusive communities, but actually very closely uh, working together and, and with one another. Still, you know, observing uh, things like uh, restrictions on marriage and uh, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, in the case of Brahmins, uh, pollution uh, rituals and so forth. But basically, uh, say, you know, experimenting, test driving these ideas. And I think these stories um, probably do that as well as anything, but they can't do it unless they are fictions. Mm. And that's where uh, taking a fictional approach has really, is really what opened up for me uh, how these stories were operating culturally. Yeah, and I, I completely agree because I think seeing these stories in action and really uh, you know, push you out of, as you said, the box, right, of what you thought was supposed to be the world. And, you know, talking about cosmologies or mythical spaces, right, or animals talking to each other or turtles being involved, like I think in that sense, um, it really challenges you and pushes you out of your, your comfort zone. But it's, it's fun at the same time, right? And you're kind of looking forward to seeing what happens with particular characters or peers. Um, I'm wondering what are the legacies of these stories in our contemporary moment? I know you mentioned in the book um, the, um, the famous author Amita Ghosh has, you know, used some of these stories and other authors have, but, but are they still performed in, in, in the Bang uh, Bangla world or what, what traction do they have today? Yeah, they do. Uh, uh, Amitabh um, used the uh, Bone Baby story, um, which is uh, um, the woman who ultimately uh, takes control of the whole Chandravan, which is the southern part of Bengal, the, the mangrove swamps, and uh, the Atharobati, as it's called, the, the land of the 18 tides. And uh, Amitabh's retelling of that story was actually um, very helpful for me too uh, because I, I saw uh, how people uh, in his novel uh, The Hungry what was it what is the title you recall suddenly drawing a blank um, yeah. Hungry Tide uh, where they they uh, you know use these stories uh, as a way of trying to understand issues that are much more fundamental than sectarian division. That is, how do we survive in a swamp where we are beset with, you know, uh, serpents and tigers, uh, you know, wild animals of all sorts, uh, uh, crocodiles and, uh, and the like. And, and how can we work together to make a viable community? And, uh, you know, I found that, uh, you know, to be extremely uh, provocative. Uh, and that, that actually was one of the things that uh, reading, reading Amitabh Bush is actually one of the things that uh, broke open uh, sort of how, how these stories were actually used mm -hmm. and confirmed for me the fictional uh, nature uh, 
where they were test driving ideas. And I think that is really critical to all the tales. Uh, what if? And uh, you can't do what if in theology. You can't do what if if you're writing history. You can do what if if you're writing fiction. And these stories are all about uh, the what if. And I think it's so important. You've done such a great service for us to, you know, not only translate some of these stories, but also help us think about how to approach them and critically engage with them. Um, and yeah, I think Osha's book was The Hungry Tide, and I think it came out in 2005, but I could be mistaken. But it, it yeah, also introduced right. an environmental component as well, right? And so it's kind of interesting to see how these stories um, continue to be transformed to the contemporary climate as well. Um, there's so many important pieces of this book, and we, I, as you said, we could speak for hours and hours about it. But um, before we go to our traditional final question, is there perhaps anything else that you want to mention um, that I may have not asked you about in terms of the book or something that you'd want readers to take away or our listeners to take away from our conversation? Uh, yeah, there's uh, two things. Uh, one is um, one of the great uh, problems in trying to approach uh, a literature like this is keeping in mind that it is literary. It's it, This is fiction. Um, now, some people would object to, uh, particularly followers of Bone Baby today would probably uh, object to that characterization, but it's fictional, at least adjectively, if not uh, as a noun fiction. And these uh, fictions um, uh, explore ideas in ways that you simply cannot do uh, any other way. And the stories, um, I, I think, suffer when they are categorized as uh, folk tales or uh, fairy tales, which are because they actually have fairies in them. Mm. Um, <clears throat> when people put them into those boxes, they dismiss them. And uh, this takes us back to that myth history. Uh, divide. The historians want to tease out whatever they can that looks to be historically verifiable, and uh, then the, they, they turn over everything else to uh, the folklorists who, and mythographers who, who try to approach these stories as fairy tales or folk tales. And I think that once you uh, use those categories, you impose kind uh, of um, artificial division uh, on the stories. Whereas if you treat them as fictions, they have their own reality. They're autotelic in that sense. They define what reality is for themselves. And while the world that they inhabit is a function of the uh, author's imaginary, that is the, co the, the conditions under which that particular author is writing, the presuppositions about the nature of the world, uh, what that author knows of other literary traditions and religious traditions. Uh, they are situated um, historically, and they um, uh, explore. And so they're explorative. And I think this is, uh, this is the thing that a lot of people just simply missed. The, these aren't theological um, sort of injunctions or, or declarations of some systematic statement about the nature of the world, but quite the opposite. They are uh, really subjunctive in that sense, uh, exploratory, um, trying to figure out how this world actually fits together. And I think that is part of the joy of all of these stories. And I know it's certainly been, for me, it's just been, uh, it's been a really fantastic kind of journey to see all of the uh, permutations and all of the possibilities that are explored in these, in these tales. Secondly, let me just say that I have translated um, a number of these tales. Several of the translations are in the book, in the Witness to Marvels. Um, but I have uh, just completed this week an anthology of the major tales, uh, the six tales that constitute the um, story, the, uh, the story of uh, Krishna Ram Das's uh, Krishna Mungal, I mean, I'm sorry, Rai Mungal, uh, where it's the story of Dokki and Rai and Borokan Gaji. Uh, the story of Gaji and Kalu and Champavati that I've told in some, uh, to some extent. The Bone Baby story uh, where she comes in and uh, settles uh, the Shundarbun 
uh, and a, a story of Shepard Peer, who was uh, the first uh, of these uh, figures who had both Hindu and, and Muslim orientations. And then the story of Khwaja Kizar, who uh, actually is al Kizar from the Quran, and it's a story of his uh, instruction to Moses. So I've just finished uh, that anthology and we'll be shipping that off to the University of California Press probably the first week of January. Um, so, um, you know, those are the two things. And then you you, you said you wanted uh, more of a what's next. Yeah, what do you, I mean, those, the, I'm very excited about the new translation project that you just finished, which seems to be um, a continuity of the stories that you have translated here and more, but are there other projects that will keep you busy in the next foreseeable while? Yes, and, and let me let me just also add about the translations. One of the problems is this literature is not well known outside of Bengal. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even inside of Bengal, there's a lot of people who are completely unaware of this cycle of tales. And I've always felt in my earlier work on the, the Chaitanya movement, um, people have to have the text. They have to be able to read the text. So one of my first works, uh, which was a study of the hagiographical tradition of uh, Krishna Chaitanya, 16th century, uh, depended on uh, Ed Demok, my mentor, and I finishing the translation of the largest of the hagiographies, which is the Chaitanya Chaitanya Krishna Das Raj. Secondly, uh, I, uh, in this case, felt that uh, even fewer people knew these stories. And so I, I first translated some um, in an anthology um, for Princeton, um, religions of uh, India and practice, uh, did the, the basic Shepherd Pierce cycle. And then I did a, a whole volume of uh, called Fabulous Females and Peerless Peers, which were uh, eight stories of uh, women who, I think we mentioned this right at the beginning of our discussion today, uh, women who had uh, taken control uh, of the world with the help of Shepherd Pierce. And so uh, now I have translated uh, these others as a, a way of letting people see for themselves. One of the things I discovered when I started talking about these things publicly, people didn't believe the stories. They didn't believe I was telling the story properly. Mm -hmm. And so I decided they needed to have full translations uh, of those major tales. And then they can do with them what they will. But at least now they will be able to circulate. And again, uh, you know, Amitabh Ghosh's uh, Bone Baby story uh, really helped in that regard, uh, sort of signaling uh, that these do circulate and that people do know. As for next projects, um, I've been working a number of years sort of assembling material and, and speculating. There is a, there is a, a figure in the um, Gordia Vaishnava tradition, which is the Chaitanya uh, tradition, by the name of um, uh, Haridas Thakur. Uh, and of course, that's a very um, you know, Vaishnava name, the servant of Hari or Krishna. Um, and, but his, his other name is Jabon Haridash. Now, Jabon means uh, foreigner or Muslim, and Mushaman. And I've discovered that these stories. Um, are actually, they're in the, the hagiographies devoted to Chaitanya. Um, and they, they're really quite extensive. Some of them, you know, run um, what would be the equivalent of 40 or 50 print pages uh, telling his exploits and, and the way that he conducts himself. And Jabal Haridas is a, is a Muslim that most Hindus will, in the tradition, will say convert to uh, the Vaishnava tradition. But in fact, what I've discovered is in reading these stories carefully, there's no evidence that conversion ever happened. Mm -hmm. He was a most likely, at least piecing together his practices, he was a practicing Chishti Sufi, who, and Chishtis are allowed to use any name of God that tastes sweet to their lips, so he, he chose the name of Krishna as the, the name of God that he would chant. He lived among the Vaishnavas, and he chanted the name. In fact, he chanted the name 
are better than anyone else. Uh, the stories say uh, 300,000 times a day, uh, chanting the name Trila. And so um, the, the stories of, of, uh, of Jabon Haridash um, have intrigued me for some, some time. And I, I've been trying to put together the translations of the passages where he is prominent and also trying to analyze uh, sort of the nature uh, of his uh, religious practice and what it means for the person who is held up by the founder of the community, Krishna Chaitanya, held Jabon Haridas up as the exemplar of chanting the name of God, which is the first thing that that the Gaudiya Vaishnavas are taught to do. Now, most of us know that chant as the Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram chant, uh, the 16 uh, main Mahamantra. But um, Jabal Haridas is the model, and he's a Muslim. And that hasn't been excluded. And so what I'm trying to do is, is tease out not only the stories uh, and see if there's a pattern to them, but his stories are pure Pitha, uh, just like the stories that I've just finished uh, translating and analyzing. And yet they're embedded right at the very heart of the Gordia Boishnav movement. Fantastic. I mean, all of those projects sound so good, and I look forward to getting my hands on them when they're out. And again, once again, thank you so much for joining us and taking us on this world of peers and piranis and augurs and fairies um, in this fantastic book, Witness to Marvel, Sufism and Literary Imagination. Um, I should also say that this book is available as an um, Eve version, right, for free online. So folks want to access it, they should be able to buy um, Luminos, am I correct? Yes, yes. the Luminoso um, website or the, the platform on the University of California uh, website, if you go to the press, uh, the book will come up first, but then it'll say download um, a PDF version. And it'll take you to the Luminoso um, website where you can download. And, and in fact, the book was printed from the download. Mm. Um, so you get the full book uh, in PDF, and it is free. Yes. Which and is... uh, open access, which is, uh, makes me very, very happy. Yes, and I think it will make our listeners very, very happy too. And they could use it as resources for their courses that um, maybe some professors who are listening are teaching. Um, again, Professor Seward, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so grateful for our time together. Um, and I look forward to having conversations with you in the future. Thank you. My pleasure. That was my conversation with Professor Tony K. Stewart about his book, Witness to Marvel, Sufism and Literary Imagination. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, and we hope to have you again next time. Until then, stay well.